Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. C.W. Metcalf was a highly respected author on the use of humor in stress management. For 22 years, he consulted with hundreds of global clients, taught at three major universities, and pursued careers in writing, performing, advertising, and hospice volunteer work. His message was based on research with crisis and trauma survivors who remained healthy, resilient, and creative under pressure, but eventually his own life-and-death battles inspired him the most. In 1996 and 2002, C.W. proved that he practiced what he preached as he overcame a less than 2% chance of recovery from brain surgeries. In our 2004 master's interview, C.W. shared a cancer survivor's joy as he talked about the importance of remaining creative, healthy, and productive through times of uncertainty. If you enjoy this classic interview, please share it with your friends and visit mastersbywinclaybaugh.com to sign up for our mailing list. And remember, Master's Podcasts are also available on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and Spotify podcast platforms. Hi everybody, this is Wynn Claybaugh and welcome to this issue of Masters and I have been anticipating this day for quite a while. The man who's sitting with me right now, I heard him speak at TSA's symposium in Miami in January of 2001. Couldn't really tell you what his topic was, but I could tell you many, (laughs) many stories that he shared that day and whatever he shared that day certainly captured my heart and I never forgot him. In fact, when I came out with my book, I mentioned C.W. Metcalf in the book and a story that he relates. And of course, in the process of getting the book published, I needed to get permission from C.W. to to use his name and use his story. And that began a a conversation uh, several months ago. And And I said to C.W. that I wanted to interview him for Masters. And so here we are today. We're in, in Palm Springs, California, and CW, I'm so grateful, and welcome to Masters. Thank you. I just, uh, I'm amused at the fact that you can't remember the topic. No one can. Right. Um, I know I've done well uh, at a presentation when people couldn't tell you what the topic was, but they can tell you a, a story, uh, they can tell you a, something that affected them, and I've always tried to avoid... Uh, two things. One is people want to call me a motivational speaker. Okay. That's an anathema to me because if any motivational speaker were really any good, why would you need to hear more than one? You'd have, <laughs> you'd be motivated. You'd have right. the tools, you'd know okay. what to do. All right? um, I consider myself to be a, a teacher and uh, that's what I started out as uh, on a college level m- many years ago. And uh, it's still what I enjoy doing because it means that I have to constantly stay ahead of the curve in terms of learning in order to be able to teach. So it uh, motivates and pushes me to keep learning. Well, what you shared that day, not only did it capture me, it it captured the 2,000 people who were in the audience that day. 
Dennis James, who's my best friend and education director in my company, when he found out that you and I were doing this interview today, he was just so jealous because you did the same thing to him back in 2001. And you're not from the beauty industry and you've got a, a wealth of, of wisdom. We have been sitting here, I think, for an hour speaking <laughs> before yes, we actually yeah. even started recording. And, yes. and I already wrote down a, a page of notes and questions and things that I want to talk to you about. This is going to take a while because you have a lot to share. And I asked you if it was okay if I shared this with our listeners. Uh, when I spoke to you back in January, six months ago, I asked you, hey, can we do this master's interview? And you said, absolutely. I called you last week and said, hey, CW, uh, I really want to do that interview. And you said to me, well, if you're serious about it, we better do it soon because although I don't agree with them or believe them, the doctors have given me 30 days to live. Yes, but... When I first uh, went into the hospital in May of 2003, they gave me 24 hours to live. Okay. <laughs> uh, then they gave me a week, then they gave me a month, and then they didn't know what to do because the depth of leukemia that I was infected with just hadn't been cured before. The level of sepsis infection in my body was almost 90%. It was. Mm. I had maybe 10% of the tissue in my body that wasn't diseased. I had uh, a leukemia cell count that was above a dead man's count. Mm -hmm. And they told my wife that to give me any treatment other than pain medication would simply be to extend my suffering. And she said, well, then extend his suffering because <laughs> she knew me and she knew perfectly well I wasn't ready to go anywhere. I've gotten that 30 to 60 day talk, 30 to 90 day talk, I, I would say at least three times in the last <laughs> uh, nine months. And my body continues um, to do things that uh, keep it from coming true. But I have to admit that when you're told that over and over again, the one positive thing it did for me was it started bringing an incredible focus into my life. It was, this is not an abstraction. Uh, you know, the, the best doctors in the field don't understand why I'm still alive. They're sending my blood to all kinds of study centers to find out, you know, what's going on. Well, you shared with me that they're not paying you for your blood. To, well, there's to... a possibility that I may actually be hired. And I, and I laughed. I thought that was so funny that, that now your blood is making more money than your mouth is. So. I know. It's like, talk about blood money. Uh, but the idea is that because my case is so anomalous, they hope to learn something from how I've continued to stay alive and that they might actually pay me uh, to stay alive. Right. Yeah, there's very little money in being dead. Right. And uh, they, <laughs> and I just thought that was, whether or not that comes about, the idea just struck me as so profoundly both absurd and delightful. It was, uh, everybody is, you know, feeling so badly for me that I got leukemia and that I got so sick and it's taken me so long to recover. And now they're thinking of paying me to study my blood. And I thought, you know, I've always been a fairly optimistic human being, mm -hmm. but even the most optimistic person could not foresee <laughs> <laughs> that I would make a living dying. <laughs> well, not that your journey with leukemia is the topic of this 
master CD, but it has brought incredible clarity. It has kind of put all BS aside, so to speak. Well, that was, it was a three-stage process, as we talked about beforehand. One was I had a major brain surgery in uh, 1996 that killed me, and uh, several times. And they told me I had less than a 2% chance of recovery, and I remember looking at the doctor, and, and he said, I have to tell you that if you do recover, you may be mentally, physically, and emotionally impaired for the rest of your life. And I said, so, so there won't be any major changes. <laughs> and he got really irritated with me, because to him, that was denial. You know, right, To me, right. it was... Uh, so what's new? Well, I was practicing one of the primary principles I have found that people have in common who do well in periods of stress and difficulty. And that is the ability to access absurdity and adversity. Hmm. Not go skipping down the street singing, don't worry, be happy, but being able to look in the eye of the monster and see that green thing hanging from its nose. You know That's... what I mean? It's the idea of being able to see the absurdity in the adversity that presents itself to you because it gives you a sense of control. Right. And there are some people who say, well, it's a false sense of control. And there are other people that tell me, because I'm hopeful and optimistic, that it's false hope. And I want to say to people, uh, well, all hope is by its nature false. Right. Because it's hope. A lot of the advice we get, you know, get serious. Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry. You know, Oscar Wilde uh, had a great statement, which was, you know, and I've seen it on some cards lately, life is far too important to be taken seriously. Right. And it's absolutely true. Right. The joy of this life, the fun, the passion, the happiness, intrigue, and frivolity of it is every bit as important as, you know, the, the study of DNA and the Hubble telescope. But we forget that, and we get locked into this, uh, what I call dead serious mode, and I find that a very predictive statement you know when people walk up to you and say listen to me I'm dead serious I want to say well God lie down you know, I'll call an ambulance well when I asked you how I would introduce you you're an author you're a writer you said you're an earthling yes I am from this planet <laughs> and you are which is often debated not a speaker but a teacher you've actually taught in three different universities yes I did I didn't fit in very well in the academic environment I was instructed to wear a tie to faculty meetings at one university and I did I just didn't wear pants and they <laughs> failed to find this amusing uh, oh, so boy. I moved through those universities fairly quickly but obviously something took hold because while I was waiting for you uh, this morning when we met up you were on the phone with a student that you said uh, was a student of yours in 1974 and right. you know is still and you know something looking to I you. had said uh, all those years ago had finally come home to them and they contacted me about this guy about three years ago and he said you know I, I found your website and I thought I've got to get in touch with you because I remembered this story you told and when you told it, I thought it was absolute BS. And he said, but you know, I came to a point in my life where I was living that story, and I knew how to make it turn out right. What was the story? Do you want to repeat the story? Because I have a couple of stories. I'm, I'm, I'm like this little fan sitting across from you because <laughs> almost like I've, I've gone to see a, a concert with my favorite group and I want them to sing all my favorite songs because I have a couple of stories that I want you to tell. So. Well, I... 
Yes, I remember this particular story because he brought it back to me, and it was a concert uh, that was supposed to be held. Santana. And this was when Santana was, my gosh, this was the 70s. I mean, he wasn't nearly the icon he has since become, right. although he was every bit uh, the brilliant musician and composer. And the concert was to be held November 12th, uh, random date. It snowed so much that nobody showed up for the concert except the tech people, whom I happened to be one at the time, yeah. who was working in the theater. He didn't shut down the show. He had us bring up the lights, give the introduction, and all the techies came down and sat in the front row. There couldn't have been 12 of us. And he put on one of the most incredible performances I have ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I was telling that story because at the time I was teaching an acting class. And I said, you know, so many of you depend upon the feedback of others uh, to express your art. And I said, it only takes one person sitting out there, right. you know, for you to gain that connection. Right. And look for that person. Be with that person. I said, if someone like, and they did, they had a wonderful time. They weren't disappointed people didn't show up. They were just happy that there were 12 techies in the room to perform for. Right. Because right. they loved what they were doing. Right. And I said, if you don't love what you're doing that much, okay, that it only takes one person sitting in the room for you to do it, right. then do something else. Right. And he had gotten to a point in his career where he had been doing something he hated for years, and, uh, and he decided to make a change. And he put on this workshop, and one person came. <laughs> and, and, and did he perform as bang, if there were a thousand? That, yeah, absolutely. He said, I, I doubt I'll ever do that well again. <laughs> see, I, I love that story, and I love that message, because now... I'm going to relate that to who our listeners are. Yes, that please. they're thinking. Gosh, if I had a full clientele, you know, then I would dress appropriately. Then right, I would right. show up to work on time. Right. Then I would have a good attitude. You know, <laughs> salon owners. If I had a, a brilliant team of people who were passionate and loved working here, then of course I would facilitate great staff meetings. I would implement all these wonderful systems. And well, you've picked it up. Yeah. It's the same way with every business. You have to operate as though you are successful and you have to operate from some sense of love and passion for what you're doing and if you can't whether 40 people come in the door in an hour or one if that one person who comes in doesn't get that sense of professionalism joy concern and regard for them then not only are they not going to come back, they're not going to tell anybody else. Right. So give that sold-out performance even if there's nobody yeah, in the audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. It's a sold-out performance every time you get on stage. And in the beauty industry especially, I often notice if I go into a place where there's a lot of activity, it's a well-established, and everybody has a character. <laughs> everybody has a performance that they give. And the performance changes from person to person, you know, right. because they're sensitive to that person's needs. Right. There's some people who don't want to hear a word from you. Right. <laughs> there are others who want to chat endlessly. And I really believe that in the beauty industry, that one-to-one -one connection, it is a performance in the best sense of the word every time you connect with a client. Hmm. And, you know, if you don't see yourself as the star of your life, 
and nobody else is going to put you in that role. <laughs> That's funny. I have to interject here because, uh, again, I'm that fan that wants you to perform your hit song. Uh-huh. Um, Dead skunk in the middle of the road. No, not that one. Not that one. <laughs> uh, the, the story that I related, something that happened to you in an airport, and my book is called Be Nice or Else. And Oh, about the fellow who attacked me with the Halliburton case? Was that it? No. No, about the about the, the man in the airport attacking oh. the ticketing agent. Because, again, my, my whole purpose is to give nice people a voice. Right. You know, nice exactly. people do not finish last. No, and they don't. Being nice doesn't mean that you let people walk all over you. So you tell this great story if you don't mind telling the story. And then I'm going to set this other stuff up for you. That's fine. I've seen this more than once and, and in a variety of ways. The story I think you're referring to took place in Detroit on a snowed-in day when all the flights were being canceled and everything was going to pieces. And this guy pushed his way through to the head of the line, and I'll never forget him because he had cowboy boots and a big hat and very fancy braided shirt. Obviously had a very high opinion of himself and his outfit. And he pushed his way up to the front of the crowd and he leaned over the desk in a threatening fashion and said to the... Uh, woman behind the desk. I have got to get on this plane to uh, Washington. It's critical. I want you to know that if I don't get on this plane to Washington, and he made some sweeping comment about, I don't know, the security of the country or something. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and she said, sir, you're going to have to wait in line with everybody else. Nothing is leaving. And he said, do you know who I am? And she didn't miss a beat. She picked up the microphone and said to the entire assembled crowd, Ladies and gentlemen, we have a man at the front of the line who has no idea who he is. If anyone can identify him, would they please step forward? And people just broke into hysterics. Right. And this guy couldn't be angry any longer. He right, right. was lost. Right. It was gone. And I have always used that story as an example of one of the worst jobs you can have is running complaints lines or right. running, you know, working for a computer company where everybody is calling with a problem and, right. you know, it's your fault. Right. Uh, because that's what we do. When right. we want to gain a sense of control, we find somebody to blame. Right. This program that you have that you're developing, that you are currently using and, and sharing life skills, uh, I just have to ask you, you know, getting news that, okay, you only got 30, 60, 90 days to live. Are there things that you have eliminated from your life? Are there things that you have amplified in your life? And do those lessons play into this new program that you're oh, sharing, absolutely. Life Skills? Yes. I have told stories for years about people, other people, who have been in difficult situations and by using these skills have managed to get through them. I want to tell you something. I am not one of those people who believes that a positive attitude is all you need. All right? right. I, that really irritates me. Because if that was all I needed, I would be tall, good looking, and have hair. All right? Because <laughs> uh, I'm very positive. Um, a positive action is far more critical than positive thinking. Okay. Explain the difference. It's, people so often say to you, well, you've got to remain optimistic. Well, you know what? You don't. What you have to remain is open to the emotional sense of who you are at that moment. 
Now, it may not be appropriate in a salon if you're having a bad day to fall on the floor crying, but it's perfectly oh, appropriate. Oh, I've seen that. Well, sure, I have too. <laughs> I've seen some clients do that after a cut. Right. Um, but <laughs> the, the astute manager knows when somebody's not having a bad day, and instead of getting on their butt about it, it's like, why don't you take a few minutes and go sit down, have a cup of coffee, and relax? I'll cover for you. Right. You know, and if I can help in any way, let me know. What a unique concept, as opposed right. to, look, you get your act together and put that smile on your face and get your ass in gear. Oh, <laughs> and that's... you get out there and make your clients feel yeah, good. Do it. Right. I mean, please. Um, you know, that's like taking your best salespeople and slapping them across the face and saying, you know, get out there and treat that customer with more respect, you idiot. Right. And right. it just doesn't work. It doesn't have to take that uh, life-threatening experience or that catastrophic event in your life to bring you to the realization that breathing is precious and human relationships are precious and God bless John Lennon, love really is all there is. It is a choice that we make. And it is true that difficult, challenging experiences can bring out that sense of wonder, awe, and joy, and magnify it. It is equally true that those same difficulties will befall others. And I saw this happen when I was working as a hospice volunteer. One of the most rapid growth rates of cancer cells takes place in patients when they hear they have cancer. There is a, a period of about 48 to 90 hours where once they know they have cancer, the cancer cell growth just proliferates. Right. And that says a lot. Uh, there's a science called psychoneuroimmunology, which I have been studying for years. It says a lot about that attitudinal response and how it affects the physiological, psychological response. You don't have to get hit over the head. You don't have to get a 30-day you know, dire prediction of your life. What you have to be willing to do is pay attention to five things and start thinking about them. That's are, all. Are five. these the life skills? Yeah, these are the life skills. They're very okay. simple. One is altruistic behavior. When I say that altruistic behavior is one of the most common denominators among long-lived, self-assessed, happy people. People immediately think, oh God, Mother Teresa, what, I've got to go to Calcutta and work with you know, the sick. No. Altruism, at its root, doesn't mean self-sacrifice. It means a gratifying sense of service to others. And all it takes to practice that is to step out of your own cubicle for a minute and go say to someone else, uh, is there anything I can help with? Huh. The fascinating thing to me is we see it on the news all the time. A uh, man jumps off the bridge to save the drowning woman. A woman runs into the building to save the baby from the fire. And afterwards, the reporters all ask them the same question. Where did you find the, the, the bravery to do such a thing? And they always say the same thing. Well, I, I, I just did what anybody would do. And, you know, you're at home going, mm, not me. No, <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Well, the truth of the matter is it has to be bred out of us. And it has been to a large degree. We are taught more to fear our fellow human beings than to have empathy for them. And 
in order to be altruistic, i.e., in order to care about other people, means you have to essentially begin to trust other people, and that is inherently difficult for, for a lot of people in our culture. Altruism is the number one common denominator, in my experience, among people who survive and thrive and do well in periods of pressure. They spend a large part of their lives in service to others. And the interesting thing about it is, as a hospice volunteer, I used to feel guilty because after dealing with a sick and dying child and a family in turmoil, I would come away feeling good. And I talked to other hospice workers and they would say the same thing. And now it has a medical description, it's called helper's high. And hmm. it literally alters hmm. the biochemistry of the body. So, you know, when you're talking about being nice, what you're really talking about is pay attention to the concerns of others. It can be as simple in a salon as you've got 10 free minutes. Instead of taking that 10 free minutes to make a, an angry phone call to your ex-boyfriend, then you see somebody who needs help and you offer it to them. And you don't even have to give it to them. Right. They may say no. Right. The simple act of having offered it. And by the way, what I hear you saying it's not just for the other person's benefit. It's no, almost it's, it's offering it for selfish reasons, but selfish in a good way. Ayn Rand wrote about it uh, decades ago. She wrote about selfish altruism. Right. That the act of being of value to others enhances our own self-image. Okay. And it does. And the second skill is a little more difficult to define, but I think really applies to your audience, and that's community. I, I, I'm a real advocate of work communities. I don't believe much in corporate cultures. To me, cultures grow in petri dishes. Uh, <laughs> people know how to work together. That's how we've survived. Right. Community is a fascinating word. It comes from the same Greek Latin root as communion, communication. It means to be at one with. And a community is two or more people who have a common problem seeking a common solution. That's why I always suggest to owners of any business that they start off with what's working here right. and how can we nourish that right. as opposed to what's not working right. and how can we eliminate that. A community consists of two or more people with a common problem seeking a common solution. Right. It can be mates, it can be a workplace environment, it can be two people who find themselves in a car wreck. It doesn't refer to the gated communities <laughs> right, right, right. that we all live that in out of fear. And there's not much difference between communities and gangs. Right. It's just that a gang has a common problem, which is that they feel rejected, unaccepted, and unacceptable. So their common solution is to find an enemy. Right. And I see a lot of businesses operating as gangs. You know, it's like, and using a lot of war terminology, you know. You talked about that. Yeah. And I've, I mentioned that, the whole idea of challenging businesses to not use war terminology it, it just as is, it relates to business. It's so typical. It, uh, oh my God, they're killing us. Uh, we're really under In referring the to the uh, competition. Yeah, yeah right. All right. You know, uh, um... And part of that has to do with the white male domination of business for so long worldwide. You know, the first real business, I'm sorry, it wasn't prostitution. The first real business 
that was the first entrepreneurial work. <laughs> the first real business was piracy. And piracy depended entirely upon blowing the other guy out of the water and stealing his money. Right. Well, that's pretty much how corporate America works. Right. Uh, you blow the other guy out of the water and you get his money, his clients, etc. Um, right. And this war terminology has come to dominate a lot of businesses. And combat, anybody who's ever been in combat, I assure you, uh, finds it insulting. Right. That people call a bad day at the office a day in the trenches. Right. No, it's not. I got pictures of people in trenches. Right. I got pictures of people in body bags going home in pieces. That's, I'm sorry, you're involved in competition. Right. Competition is radically different than combat. Right. Competition is great stuff because it pushes you to the edge of your own envelope and keeps you moving, all right? What's the third life skill? The third life skill is is humor, and I talked about that extensively for years. For years, it was the only skill I talked about because it was the one I saw as central to developing the others. Humor in terms of what I mentioned earlier, the ability to access absurdity and adversity, the ability to take yourself lightly and your problems seriously so you understand the difference between the two. Right. All right. It has nothing to do with jokes and joke telling. Right. As I've often told audiences. So you can be good at telling jokes but not be humorous. But not have a sense of humor at all. Right. In Got fact, it. a lot of people use jokes and joke telling as a defense mechanism. Right. A lot of people play the clown to keep you away, you know. There's negative, there's a lot of negative humor, I, you know, whether it's uh, sexist, ageist, you Just know. demeaning of other people. Well, yeah, and, and then what do we say? They go, well, that's really offensive. What, what's the matter? Don't you have a sense of humor, fatty? <laughs> you know, what's the matter, you Nazi? You got no sense of humor? <laughs> right. It's like we use it as a club, and there are a lot of negative uses of it. My primary focus on humor really has more to do with this. A disciplined sense of joy in being alive. There's nobody out there on the speaking circuit when giving a talk on misery 1A, how to have a crappy life. Because we don't need that. We wake up with that. What we need is a set of tools and skills that we can use to discipline ourselves to live a joyful life. And in this world that we live in, it is a discipline. Not in terms of rigor but in terms of discipleship, in terms of who are your heroes, who are the people that you emulate, who are the people you admire, how do you feel about the work that you're doing, that sense of joy in being alive is a developed capacity and that's what we try to do. My goal always uh, is to find how does this intensify my sense of joy in being alive. Hmm. Oh my God, it's phenomenal. You know, instead of thinking of every day as my last, I'm thinking of it as my first. I'm thinking of it as I don't get up in the morning and pray for another day of life. I get up in the morning and thank God I've got another day of living. Right. I keep telling the doctors that my perspective and my attitude have a lot to do with why I'm not dead yet. Right. What's the fourth skill? The fourth skill is imagination. Imagination. And it sounds the most abstract and it's really one of the most concrete. People get imagination and creativity confused. Imagination takes place purely in the mind. Okay. Creativity is a physical act. Right. I might first imagine 
what would this hairstyle look like? But I'll see it in my mind's eye. Right. And then I might try to manifest it. The act of manifesting it is, the is creativity. creativity. Okay. Okay. But how you use your imagination is crucial. It is the first step toward everything. And you're imagining all the time. You get up and you imagine, will these socks match this pair of pants? And a lot of people get up and start imagining, oh God, it's Friday and it's going to be a hideous day. There's going to be thousands of people on it. I ask audiences, how many of you meditate? And maybe a half a dozen hands go up. If I say, how many of you worry? Well, you know, if your hand isn't up, you're worried because you don't want people to know you worry. Right, right. <laughs> and worry is the most popular form of meditation and the most powerful use of imagination. Wow. Because if you're constantly imagining the worst that can happen, you are moving yourself in that direction. And I said it earlier, I don't think a positive attitude is everything. And I know there is a lot of crap, pain, and dismal occurrence in the course of our lives. And I don't discount that. I think it's critical. That's the stuff that teaches us what we're made of and allows us to bring these skills forward and practice them. But imagination, it has to do with that meeting we're talking about, where we ask people to come in with the best thing that has happened. And then we try to imagine how can we take these good things that are happening and apply them to other areas of the business? That takes place purely in the mind's eye. Uh, right. um, how else could we trigger the imagination? You know, the, uh, one of the most enjoyable ways is to practice using it, and it's not difficult. There was a game we used to play in college, and a lot of people have played this, where you turn the sound down on the television, and you make up the dialogue for what you're watching. <laughs> right. You know, uh, there are imaginative games that you can play like that. And the other way to stimulate the imagination is by challenging it. In other words, looking outside our realm of experience and bringing ourselves... I've always hated biographies. Well, find one. Read it, you know. And find out why you hate biographies. Right. You know, what's the problem here? You may quit halfway through. I don't care. Any time that you take yourself outside of your experience in life and your training, understanding, and knowledge, any time you step outside of that line, you're exercising your imagination. That's and I know I mean. the answer to this, but I, I want you to say it. By uh, you know, a salon owner facilitating that experience, a juggling class for mm -hmm. a staff meeting as mm -hmm. opposed to another mm -hmm. haircutting class, mm -hmm. stimulating that imagination. That's right. What will that do to teamwork, creativity within the salon? What will that do to morale? What will that do to profits in the salon? No, you don't know my answer. Oh, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> Which it is might... why I get to interview <laughs> you. It might screw things up completely. Okay. All right. The first thing you want to do is Find out what those people who work with you are interested in other than, okay? Because if you've got somebody who works for you who is a jeweler, having them give a jewelry class on how to make jewelry instead of another haircutting class, now that begins to bring in that element of imagination. That begins to bring in that element of community. That begins to bring in that element of altruism. It gives everybody an opportunity to share what they do. Um, I, I remember this so distinctly uh, at uh, 
Land's End, uh, there was a fellow who was fascinated by fly tying. He was a fly fisherman. And uh, he was such an advocate of it that on weekends he used to give classes on fly tying to people. These were people who didn't even fly fish. Right. You know, they just found the focus and, the, and making this beautiful bug out of, you know, fur and feathers and interesting. Right. So, that, you know, what I would say is you find out what your people have to share with one another and that's a far more powerful experience. Right. Wow. Because it brings everything into play. Wow. And you're going to ask me about number five. What's the fifth skill? The fifth skill uh, is divine luck. Some people call it divine intervention. Some people call it dumb luck. I thought dumb intervention doesn't make much sense. <laughs> so I call it divine luck. And what it boils down to is this. If you do not have some sense of divinity in your life, of a power greater than yourself, whether it's Mother Nature, whether it's the Great Spirit, whether it's Christ, Muhammad, Buddha, Zoroaster, if you do not have some sense of the divinity of life, if you are the biggest thing in your universe, you are severely impaired when it comes to crisis and difficulty. My wife is not a particularly religious person. And certainly not, uh, she's Cherokee. And although I have seen Christianity practiced far more effectively by many non-Christians, hmm. she had a profound experience one day, the second or third day I was in the hospital. Uh, she had to drive home at night to take care of the kids, and it's a, like a 90-mile trip. And every day for 30 days in a row, up and down, up and down, up and down. Third day she was there thinking, God, I don't know how long I can handle this. She walks in to the entryway, and this Indian woman threw herself at her feet and said, I want to pray for you. And, and Angela felt a, a bit uncomfortable. It was the waiting area for the you know, families of the patients and who were all hung in the balance in ICU. And before Angela can say, well, I'm not sure I want you to pray for me, the woman said, may all of the love that you have for whomever you're coming to visit, may all of that love be more powerful than any medicine. Hmm. And she just stopped. And this woman went on. This woman might have been seen as, uh, I don't know, uh, idiosyncratic or perhaps even idiotic by some, but Angela was so impressed by her sincerity, and she got down on the floor with this woman and said, who are you here waiting for? She said, my husband. Hmm. He's an alcoholic, he quit drinking, and he went into seizure, and they told him 30 days ago he wasn't going to live. And Angela said, well, my husband is here with leukemia and they're telling me he might die any moment. And the woman looked at Angela and said, don't believe them. <laughs> believe in life. Don't believe in death. And 
after that, every day she came in, that woman was there, and she got to know the other people who were waiting. And they began to form a community, and they began to talk about the things that were going on. Now, I am not anti-doctor by any means, because part of my recovery is directly attributable to physicians who fought for my life. But they can only do so much. If your own sense of hope, if your own sense of the divine, if your own sense of that which is greater than yourself isn't with you, then there's very little that medicine can do. And I'm not a preacher and I'm not here to proselytize and I, I am here to say that from my own experience I know for a fact that prayer, meditation, vision quest, whatever you want to call it, the time you spend alone seeking guidance from, you know, the sun god Ra, <laughs> or whoever, whatever it may be, opens you up to another level of passion, compassion, and healing. I wrote a wonderful line in the book that I'm working on now. I liked it a lot. I said, one of the reasons I had begun to doubt the reality of near-death experience was because Christians saw Christ, Buddhists saw Buddha, Muslims saw Allah, you know, or Muhammad, and I said, I didn't know, but atheists probably see a monkey on a red cell phone. Um, <laughs> but that was what caused me not to believe that these were real events that I had experienced. And then the third one hit, and I came to realize something which for me was incredibly profound. Every religious tract you get your hands on, and I read most of them, from the Torah to the Bible to the Quran, to the writings of the Muhammad, uh, Zoroaster, etc., says someplace, you cannot look upon the face of God. You cannot look upon the face of God, because you cannot comprehend it. And then I realized why all those near-death experience books I'd read sounded like so much BS to me, because they're the ashes of a fire. And they are particular only to that person that, that experienced them. And that the mystery that we all have different names for and different dogmas for is beyond comprehension. So I now have a God of mystery beyond my comprehension. Um, I couldn't name it. I couldn't tell you anything about it except that it's there. Mm -hmm. And I know it's there. And I feel it. And it has altered me profoundly. And it is one of the cornerstones in my life. Every morning and every afternoon and during the day when I get depressed or down, it doesn't take but a minute to step back from what I'm doing and uh, ask for help, ask for guidance, you know, remind me I'm here to be of service and not to aggrandize myself, take away my fear and replace it with joy. That's all. It doesn't take much. But I have found that people in crisis and difficulty who have no sense of divinity in their lives do very, very poorly. And most people don't think of that as a skill. Mm -hmm. They either 
have rejected some philosophy they grew up with out of hand, or they have accepted it completely, and they really don't have any sense of the divine. What they have a sense of is dogma. So I, I just, I feel that that's a critic, and it can be developed. And it can be developed as simply as, you don't have to, you know, go through the near-death experiences or the near-life experiences that I call them, to have that sense of the divine. All you have to do is shut up and uh, sit on a beach and stare at the stars. Shut up. Sit on a rock in the woods and listen. Shut up and, uh, you know, stand on an overpass and listen to the hum of the traffic. Just be quiet. And that's finding the divine luck. I like that that's easy to grasp, that's easy to it, take on. It tends to occur in the lives of people who have these other skills developed. You know, the perfect example of it for me was my first flatline experience. I, I had been flat for a very long time. And I was flat for a very funny reason. Because all the defibrillators were in use. They had like four heart emergencies and I was the fourth. Oh and I heard them say that. I heard the tone go flat. I heard people go, oh my God, he's flat, get the paddles. I heard someone else say, oh my God, we have three heart emergencies and all the defibrillators are in use. Then they started pressing on me and giving me respiration. And uh, I remember all of that. And as luck would have, and then there was a series of experiences that I won't go into here that were very profound for me. But just as they reached the point where they were going to pronounce me, a nurse who happened to have been walking by the door earlier with that needle you see in the movies, the epinephrine adrenaline pump. Right which hardly ever works, it's really a last-ditch effort, had passed the door earlier and heard them say, uh, all the defibrillators are in use, had gone into someone else's room who had been proclaimed and didn't need it, was walking back and heard them say, do you think we should quit now? And without any committee members, without any permission from anybody, without... <laughs> Getting any documents signed, she simply walked into the room and slammed me in the heart with that needle, and I sat bolt upright on the table. And I remember her words, and I confirmed it later by interviewing them. She said, Oh my God, it worked! <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and I said, If I live, I'll buy you guys another damn defibrillator. And I passed out. And, uh, and they all came up to me afterwards because... Uh, people in those experiences often see that kind of thing. They wanted to know what I'd heard and what I remembered and what had gone on. Um, so, again, we're back to accessing absurdity and adversity. But divine luck, you're right. People can grasp the concept more easily than they can, I suppose, divine intervention. Right. But um, that sense of divinity is critical to my existence right now. Before we actually started recording, you said that you have been paid for the last 20 years to <laughs> run around the country, uh, you know, telling people uh, what your grandma taught you. Yeah, it fascinates me because I, my mother recently died just uh, less than a week ago. 
and uh, we were all with her at the time. And it was a very peaceful and positive passing. And she died on her birthday, well into her 90s. She was ready to go, and she left. My grandmother, her mother, was a strong figure in my upbringing and in my memory of my childhood. And she is the one who used to say things to me like, we're standing at the kitchen window and a flood from a river half a mile away has risen and picked up her garden. And her garden is literally, as a piece, floating down the river. Hmm. And she's looking at it and she looks at me and said, well, I guess you won't be complaining about weeding this year, will you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's great. And it, I came to realize after I was talking to people the, the simple lessons that my grandmother had imparted to me, not directly, but by stories and by example, were what people were paying to hear from me. Right. And although my expertise is considered to be stress and change management, I don't even believe in stress management. Uh, if you can manage it, it's not stressful. <laughs> I believe in life management, in self-management. Hmm. And, and by managing yourself in your life, you know, you avoid the need for stress. And not all stresses are bad, hmm. you know. So it's not as simple. That's why I call myself a teacher and not a speaker. Because I'm constantly learning and, and trying to share what I learn with other people. Well, CW, this this has been great. Um, thank you, uh, CW. Thank you so much. You know, because of all that's going on, I'm even that much more grateful that you would take the time and spend this with us. And this is going to be a valuable tool. Believe me, I did it as much for me as for you. Good. That's good. <laughs> well, again, on behalf of our listeners all over the world, we're in ten countries now with masters. Thank you so much. Thank you.